You can turn with me in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 29. Now, I mentioned um, a few weeks ago that I was intending to start a series, which I want to start to today, that um, focuses on the theme of revival or being revived, being renewed. And so obviously I, I, I know I'm no expert when it comes to the issue of revival. But nevertheless, the scriptures are. Amen. And so the scriptures give us an indication, they teach us, and they show us glorious truths in the, in, in, the, in the Bible that relate to the kingdom of God, that relate to the people of God. And so uh, a few weeks ago we uh, looked at the prophet Habakkuk and in chapter 3 where he says, Lord, revive us in the midst of the years. Revive us in the midst of the years in wrath. Remember mercy. And I guess that's the the backdrop, that's the, the foundation. And as we consider that, we're going to move into and consider in the scriptures uh, a, uh, the nation of Israel and a particular king who came into power in Judah by the name of King Hezekiah. And so King Hezekiah was a righteous king and the Bible has much to say of him as it says and summarizes all the kings of Israel and Judah. And so we have with us the scriptures which show us what happened in the nation of Israel during the time of the reign of Hezekiah, especially when he came to the throne. And so as I said and made emphasis of the fact is is that revival has to do primarily with the church, the people of God. It um, the the word means to to live again, amen. To be revived, to come back to life. And so it's in that context that we must understand. And so that's why we can we have the scriptures that gives us various patterns of revival. And we can look at the nation of Israel and see that exactly happening to a nation and in doing so make an application of it, not just to the church, but also to us personally and individually. We can, there's lessons for us to learn. And so in doing, in, in doing so, we look at the time of Hezekiah and we see various truths. We see various patterns of revival. We see pictures of revival for us to consider these things and make an application of them to our lives. Because the reality is this, is that Hezekiah uh, was uh, responsible being uh, coming as into the kingdom and the king of, of Judah, that he was responsible for bringing about uh, a national revival amongst the the, um, uh, the the children, when I say children of Israel, I mean the children of Judah because he ruled over Judah. Now, remember, Israel is split into two and so you have the ten tribes and, and then you have the two tribes, uh, Judah and Benjamin, and you have that lineage of the kings. And so here is Hezekiah. He's the king of Judah. 
And um, uh, he's a young man who comes to the throne and it's evident that he has a heart for God. And he's intent on making change. He's intent on um, uh, bringing back the people of God back into right relationship uh, with, their, with, with, uh, with their God. And so he, he takes various steps as we will consider to establish these things. But the truth is, as I was um, reading Second Chronicles, it was probably a few months ago, and I, you know, I was again, I was aware Pastor Werner is going to go, and I thought I would get a lot more opportunity to, you know, consecutively minister. But we have also over the period quite a number of guest speakers as well, so it kind of um, can't get a full run on it. But I, I'm still going to start it. But as I was reading uh, through these chapters. My spirit was quickened. It was like I, I, the Spirit of God was just showing me some various things concerning what was happening here in the nation, what was happening with Hezekiah, and I began to see the connect, various connections uh, to the, that relate to the church and to us personally. And in saying that, the Spirit of God was speaking to me. You know, I'm not coming here this morning with a word just to, to, to speak to the church and to everyone. This word is speaking to me and to you and to us collectively. And so it is even with a degree of trepidation that I, I approach these things. That I see that the word of God is holy and the truth that it contains. And so I'm acutely aware that uh, uh, this applies to us all. And so as we consider these things, we have to have an honest heart before the Lord. We have to be willing to examine ourselves and have the Lord examine us as we, we see these, uh, these uh, truths contained there in the Scriptures. And so I want to begin a particular series on revival as we look at the reign of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. And so what is interesting to note, if you're not aware, is you have the, in the Old Testament, you have the first and second kings, and then you have first and second chronicles, which covers the same period of time. And sometimes you read, and it sounds to some extent a little bit um, repetitive, but what it's important for us to understand is that um, First and Second Kings, as is First Samuel, Second Samuel, and so forth, First uh, Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, it deals with the nation of Israel more so just historically and politically. But when it comes to Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, it's it's looking at the nation from a different perspective, and it's dealing with uh, and, and and making emphasis on the religious or spiritual condition of the nation, as well as acknowledging that political, historical content. And so you find that there is emphasis on the, the religious, spiritual status and temperature and condition of the people of Israel and Judah uh, in the various contexts. And so it's in, this, it's in this light when we look at Second Chronicles that we are seeing such a detailed aspect that relates to the religious, spiritual condition of the nation and what is going on. And so, obviously... These texts teach us something. And so I want us to examine our hearts. And my prayer is, is that God would grant us, as we work through this, that God would grant us individually a measure of revival, corporately a measure of revival, because we need God. 
Amen. So let's look. Here's uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. Bible says, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was uh, Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Um, Verse 4, Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. We'll leave it there. So this sets the tone. These opening verses give us an indication of what is going on. Hezekiah has come to the throne and uh, he's taking initial steps and he's setting some things in order. He's dealing with some situations and circumstances amongst the nation. But what is important for us to understand also as we consider this is the prevailing conditions that concern uh, the nation of Israel, ideally meaning Israel and Judah here, uh, because of their spiritual condition. See, Hezekiah has come to the throne at a unique time in the history of the nation. Now, you will remember that uh, Israel was once one, one people under the reign of King David, and then we know his son Solomon came, and took the throne, and then we understand that uh, through Solomon's sin, which we'll consider a little bit later, that the nation was then divided, and uh, ten were uh, given to Jeroboam, and then the two, because of the covenant with David, those uh, Judah and Benjamin, they followed uh, 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 Solomon's son Rehoboam, and then you had the two lineage, you had the two, and so you read the the Kings and the Chronicles, and you constantly are moving between. Israel and Judah. And so here we have, at a particular time, Israel had, um, well, Judah had some more righteous kings uh, than Israel did. And so at this particular time, we find that Israel, because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord, because of the wickedness that they have perpetuated uh, in their disobedience and their idolatry, they have already been taken captive uh, into Assyria. As later we know, Judah will go into Babylon. And so now Hezekiah is coming to the throne to be the king of Judah. But what is also interesting to point out is that Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was a wicked king. A wicked king. You see, Israel and Judah were were already in um, 
uh, had been at war with one another. Actually, if you read in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and so God had used the children of Israel to discipline and chastise the children of Judah because they too had gone into idolatry and disobedience and so they were under the wrath of God was hovering over them so to speak and they were suffering and this is all a result of Hezekiah's father King Ahaz who had disobeyed the Lord who had who had forsaken God who had worshipped the idols and so Hezekiah's own father was responsible for so much wickedness that went on in Jerusalem and then it's in this atmosphere, it's in these prevailing conditions that uh, Hezekiah comes to the throne. But I want to again just paint a bit more of a picture because in chapter 28 of Second Chronicles, if you look at verse 1 to 4, it tells us about King Ahaz. It says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire, uh, according to the abominations of the nations when the Lord God cast out, or had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. This is Ahaz on the high places, under every green tree, on the hills. And this is the, the atmosphere of the nation itself. If you go down to verse 22 of chapter 28, it gives us a further overview and it says this in verse 22, Now in the time of his distress, because God's judgment was coming upon him, he became uh, increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is that King Ahaz, he didn't repent. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which he had defeated him, saying, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and all of Israel. So Ahaz uh, gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of the Lord, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah they made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. Then Hezekiah's son reigned in his place. You know, Ahaz was so wicked that he wasn't even buried with his fathers in the kings in the tombs of the kings. His unfaithfulness and his wickedness to God was such that you can sense the prevailing conditions that Hezekiah, as a 25-year-old man now coming to the throne, is dealing with and is facing. 
The Bible says that Ahaz uh, sang, he was seeking the gods of the, uh, of the nations around him and in doing so he shut up the door in the house of the Lord. In other words, uh, he shut the temple and he said, you know what, uh, we're not interested in the God, in this particular God, the God of Israel, Jehovah. No, we're going to shut the door to the temple. We're turning our backs on him and we're going to forsake him and we're going to serve the Baals, the Asterisks and the Molech and all the other things in which he gave himself and on the high places and so forth. So again, we see the prevailing conditions of the spiritual or the spiritual conditions of the people and nation of Judah. And the wrath of God is hovering over them. They're far from God. They're not seeking God. There's no active relationship with God. The, temp, the doors of the temple are shut. And so spiritually speaking, the nation is spiritually dead in the sense that they are not alive unto God because they have turned their back. They have separated themselves. And so in light of that, let me ask this question this morning. Can the church, the people of God, resemble such a state as the nation of Israel? The answer is yes. Can the church, the people of God, resemble such a state where spiritually they can be so unfaithful to God that they too can worship the idols of the world around them, that they too can forsake God and shut the doors of the temple, so to speak, in their heart and not seek him. This is, this is potentially possible and it has happened throughout church history. And it is something for us to, to, to acknowledge and to understand. In actual fact, we can look at, in the book of the Revelation, we can look at the seven churches and we can get an overview and we can see here just in there itself the realities of these truths that we're talking about. You can begin to see that you have uh, the, the uh, in, in, as you read through those letters, as much as there's a commendation, there are a number of those that are being corrected and rebuked by the Lord. And uh, because what we are observing is a spiritual decline in the people, in the churches. And that spiritual decline has resulted in, 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 and brought about consequence to their spiritual condition. And their need is to be spiritually renewed. And that spiritual renewal comes in the form of repentance that is being indicated by our Lord as he addresses those particular churches. And so we know that Ephesus is being corrected because they have left their first love. And they're being urged by Christ to repent. Then we have uh, one of the other churches, that is Pergamos, and that has, that has compromised and is in a state of spiritual decline and death. Then we have the church of Sardis, and Jesus summarizes their condition. He says, you have a reputation that you're alive, but you are dead. So this is the spiritual condition of the church, just like as you could compare it to the nation of Israel. But it's not the only one. We also have the church of Laodicea there, 
and uh, Jesus uh, speaking and saying that they are lukewarm. And more than that, he's telling them that though they claim to be spiritually rich, he says, you are spiritually destitute and you are spiritually poor. And more than that, they have shut the door of the temple of their heart and Jesus is on the outside knocking. You know, we use that scripture, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. But the context is that he's knocking on the door of the church. He's knocking on the hearts of men and women, his people. And he's wanting to come in. And so it's in this light that we see the same truths that relate to the Old Testament having an application to the New Testament. And in, the, in, in those various examples of the, the churches in Revelation, what we see is um, uh, we see examples that can relate to churches as in, in, a, in a local sense, that can relate to them to us individually. And we also understand that we, there's also a prophetic element that relates to the church age as we look at those seven churches. But each of these applications has relevance. And we can't just dismiss them. We must examine these things. So again, I'm, as you can see, I'm, I'm laying a foundation this morning and uh, before we get into some of the nitty-gritties that relate to uh, King Hezekiah. But this is the, the reality, is that as Israel has apostatized in, in our text uh, and in, in, in the context of those of King Hezekiah, we find also that the church can and does apostatize as well. And we can see this in church history. You can look at the history of the church since Christ's day and, the, and we have the book of Acts and we have the birth of the church and we can follow church history and you see the same pattern. And so we see again spiritual de decline. We see spiritual darkness and spiritual death begin to come in and, uh, and then we see patterns of revival where God comes and he revives his people. Praise the Lord. But this is how it works. I mean, people, people in, actually in schools, they study um, uh, history and they still refer to the dark ages. But the dark ages were dark because there was no light of the gospel. Amen. That's why it was called the Dark Ages. Because it was a time of spiritual darkness. It was a time where the church had, uh, had so uh, apostatized and uh, the truth of the gospel had been so compromised. And I tell you, it was dark because uh, uh, what was required was a revival where God would visit uh, and God would breathe and God would come and he would revive his work in the midst of the years. And thank God he did and he does. But we see the same pattern. God has raised up men over the years. He's raised up movements over the years. And he has worked powerfully through men and movements. And we see those things around us. But you know what the reality is as well? We've seen the death of men. We've seen the death of movements as well over the longevity of time. And so, again, there's always a need for revival. There's always the need for God to raise up. Amen. 
raise up individuals and raise up a people to bring about a revival and to revive his work and to revive his people. It's just the way that it is. Amen. I mean, we could say, well, we should always be in a continual state of revival. Well, possibly so, but I mean, the word revive means something has to be dead for it to come back to life. And the truth is, is that this, the reality of what we're talking about as it relates to Israel and as it relates to the church is, a res, is the result of the human heart. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Man, we, man just messes it up. Can you say amen? Man always seems to corrupt. And he always deviates. The human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked and left to itself without God's grace and provision, it consistently deviates. Sin misses the mark. And that's how it works. And so we are dependent on God. We are dependent on His grace. We are dependent, Lord, revive your work, as Habakkuk says. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In wrath, when you could just quench and just kill he says revive us have mercy and that's the God amen that we serve thank God the heart is such that we drift from God we compromise we turn away we disobey and that's the pattern of the nation of Israel and it's the pattern of the church but thank God we have a merciful God. We have a faithful God. And so when we look at these things and we consider Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, we see in him a man, a young man, who comes to the throne at a time of spiritual darkness over the nation of Israel, in particular in this instance, Judah. And the Bible says that his heart is tender towards God. He has a heart for God. He has a hunger for God. He has a desire for God. Having observed the compromise and seen the wickedness and the unfaithfulness of his own family, his own father and those all around him, he is determined in his heart he wants to seek God. And that he, as a young man we see that this is exactly what he has done. And though his father, we know, was a wicked man, we, the Bible says his, his, uh, he was, um, his mother was the daughter of Zechariah, a prophet. But look at what it says in verse 2 of chapter 29 of Second Chronicles. It says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father David had done. See, Hezekiah, in his sum, God's summary of him, he says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But it also emphasizes according to all that his father David had done. You see, this is important and this is very uh, important for us to consider because what God's saying about Hezekiah is something that separates him from the other kings. Because he, he sought the Lord and he, uh, the Bible says according to all that his father David had done. What is God trying to emphasize in stating this? You see, David we know was a man after God's own heart. J David in his worship and service under the Lord was wholehearted. 
And this is exactly what is being captured in these, these, these words, just like his father David. And this is important, actually, because we spoke about this in our Bible study uh, just uh, in the last couple of weeks because of what we've been looking at in Psalm 119 about being wholehearted. But it's interesting because if you go uh, back to chapter 25, just turn and go back and look at uh, this king as uh, Amaziah. And the Bible says in verse 1, Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. Um, his mother's name was Jehudan of Jerusalem. Now listen to verse 2. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord but not with a loyal heart. Or in other words, not like his father David had done. And so isn't it interesting? Because I remember reading that, and you can begin to see that, is it possible to do right in the sight of the Lord, but still not have a loyal heart? And the answer is, yes, it's possible. You can go through and do all that is right and tick the boxes outwardly and all the external forms of religion, but inwardly that loyalness and that wholeheartedness can be lacking and the heart can be divided. And so when God says about Amaziah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. And if you read about Amaziah in the Kings, it tells you that he began to worship the false idols and, said, and, and, and go and worship on the high places. And so, but Hezekiah, he, has a, he, has a, he's do, he does what's right in the sight of the Lord, just as his father David had done. In other words, with a whole heart and a loyal heart. Doesn't mean Hezekiah was perfect the same way that David wasn't. But it is important for us to note this because this is what is required of us. This is what God is looking for. He's searched, the Spirit of the Lord searches to and fro throughout the whole earth looking for a heart that is loyal, whole, complete towards Him. And so this is what God searches for. And it is a critical component in revival. And so we've already read about Ahaz and Amaziah and we're seeing and we've touched upon that they would worship on the hills and in the high places. And when you read the, uh, the accounts of the Chronicles and the Kings, you notice that you know, they say you know, he tore down these altars but they didn't remove the high places. And so the question is, well, what, what are the high places? Because when Hezekiah came into power, he removed the high places. This is what made his heart so loyal to God, is that he, he, broke, he removed the high places, as did Josiah as well, who was another king that was wholehearted. And so, so what, what, what is a high place? What is the Bible referring to? Let's just focus on that for a moment as well. And again, all this is foundational, but I... I think it's important for us to consider these things. See, high places in relation to Israel were places of worship that were, that were, that were literally elevated places of worship. So they would set up altars on the hills and on the high places and around Jerusalem. 
and the nation of Israel, and there that they would practice their idol worship and their idolatry, and they would serve the Baals and, and the asterisks, setting up the, um, the trees, the, every green tree was an asterisk, as it refers to back here in the high places and the hills. And I've told you before, this is my opinion about the name Hillsong, but that's another thing. But this is what, uh, this is important for us to understand because it has a personal relevance to each of us. And so here we have high places and they were dedicated places of idol worship. That's what they were to the children of Israel. And they would still go to the temple and worship God. And they got some things in order, but they, they still didn't remove the high places. That's what the Bible says. You, you probably read that. And so because the high places, uh, it goes to the deeper issues of the heart. And really, they go to the inner depths of the heart. And really, if we are honest and allowing the light, the light of the gospel, the light of the word of God to go deep into our hearts, amen, it's concerning what the Lord will reveal and what he sees and what's in there. Because the reality is we as Christians can and do have high places that we revert to. And so, again, Israel would go onto these high places. And what's interesting is that when God brought Israel into the promised land, and they were to, uh, you know, obviously they were to dispossess the nations and they were to tear down their altars and they were to remove the altars from the high places. And God had warned them because if you fail to do so, those altars and those idols will become a snare to you and to your children. See, this is very scary. And so we know that uh, uh, as the children of Israel went into the promised land uh, and as much as they fought and they dispossessed the enemy and they obeyed God to various degrees, uh, they failed to fulfill the ultimate purpose and promise of God in, in inheriting the land and in destroying the, uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the altars of the, of the pagan gods that were around them and in the high places. And, what, and then what do you read later? What are they doing? They're worshipping the idols on the high places. So God said, if you don't destroy them, they'll become a snare to you. And these things in, in the scriptures are, are, are a picture of the world. The pride of life, the, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And we, this is a, another study and I can't go divert too much into this side of it other than just to state it. But it does, when we look at these idols, what we see is these idols, and especially Ashtoreth and Molech and Baal, they all have, uh, they all have representations to where, in, where John writes to the, do not love the world or the things in the world. And he talks about the pride of life, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. They all have interconnections. And he just goes right back into the garden concerning Eve as she was deceived. But getting back to this, here we have David who sets up, God blesses David and he establishes the kingdom and we know Solomon builds the temple. I mean, during a time of peace and prosperity of the nation. But you see, you read about King Solomon and what you see is a sad tale and an ending that is devastating in the purposes of God because Solomon's heart becomes divided. 
And so much so that the Bible says he marries all these foreign women and they turn, the Bible says they turn his heart. And so what Solomon ends up doing is uh, because they are still idol worshippers and his wives are worshipping their false gods, uh, he accommodates them and he builds altars uh, on the high places and around Jerusalem so that they can worship. And he was responsible for building the temple. And yet now, in the latter years of his life, God is displeased with him. His heart's divided. He disobeys God. Uh, and he's, uh, he's, and he, the, the hearts of his wives, uh, which the Lord had said not to marry them according to the law. And they've turned his heart now. And, uh, and all of a sudden, look at him. He's out there with his wives uh, at these altars on the high places, worshipping Molech and Astroth and Baal. And we say, oh, Solomon, look at that. That's shocking. But you know, the truth is, church, that this can happen to any of us. And it's a scary thought when you consider it scripturally. And we realize the seriousness of these things. And so we've got to be careful. And we've got to not by God's grace, make those same mistakes. And if we do, Lord, have mercy on us. Revive us, God. Come to repentance. Because the truth is, we all need to live a life of repentance because there's things that creep into our lives, things that we do and, and so forth that we know that are, uh, are not right before the Lord. And so the Christian can have high places in their hearts. And so in revival... The high places are torn down. In a genuine revival, the high places are torn down. Hezekiah comes and he tears down the high places. You can read it. They must be destroyed. Because if we fail to destroy them, then they will be a snare to us, as the Bible says. So, What could be some examples of high places in the modern, modern day that we live? Well, let me just put a few things to you, especially in the, in, in, in the West. Materialism, greed, the love of money. We can go as far, again, some of these things are not evil in and of themselves. But when they take when they steal our hearts and when our hearts become divided and when our heart turns and drifts from the Lord, these things are deadly and they're dangerous. So we can talk about modern uh, education. We can talk about entertainment. We can talk about sports. And these are, these are serious issues if we, if we are honest before God. Because the, they can encroach upon our spiritual life to the degree that now God takes second place. And so we get caught up in the things of the world that we neglect the very things that we uh, should be doing. And that is prayer and Bible reading and seeking God and being in the house of God. But now we've got other commitments 
We've got other desires and these things are by nature, they are worldly and we make justification of them. But you know, now we can't come to church because of some event or, or we can't be at a prayer meeting because uh, uh, we're watching a movie or whatever the case may be. See, this gets close to home for all of us, doesn't it? Let's be honest. And so all of a sudden, uh, our heart is drifting and we are moving away. And before you know it, now we don't even think about reading our Bible. We don't even think about prayer. We're so committed now and life takes over and we're just, and all of a sudden, what's happened? We didn't intend it to happen like this. But you see, when you compromise these things and you deviate just that fraction, then eventually it goes right out in this direction. And what is the need? The need is for revival. The need is to be renewed. The need is to repent. And so the high places are, are a very real issue today for the church. They are a very real issue today for us. You see, again, remember Solomon built a temple. And there was the temple in Jerusalem. But now, what does the Bible tell us in the church? We are the temple. Don't you know that we are the temple of God? The Spirit of God dwells in you. And so the issue is, you know, the issue of the high places goes to the deeper issues of the heart. But the issue of the temple goes to, the, issue, uh, the, to the, the fundamental truth. Don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you? And we, before we know it, somewhere in the process of time, we've shut the door of the temple. That's what happened in Laodicea. And we're in the day and the age, in the church age of Laodicea, right? And the door of the temple shut. You know, in the, we won't go to it, but if you look at Ezekiel chapter 8, you find a, a, a vision that God gives to Ezekiel of the temple and God takes him in the vision into the temple and he goes into the inner rooms of the temple. And as he goes into the inner rooms, he's taking Ezekiel into the depths of the temple and into the inner rooms. And what's happening is as he, as he goes into each room, there's, there's idolatrous practices. There's idol worship. And he says, this is my people. This is what they're doing in the inner, inner, inner depths of their heart, in the secret places. So what are we up to? We can all come to church, amen, but what are we doing? Are we seeking God? Are we serving God? Are we, are we living holy? Are we obeying the Lord? Is this making sense? Because... I tell you, as I write this, amen, I'm not just preaching this. I, I, this is, I, I, I sit under this myself as I study it, and I feel the light of the conviction of God. I don't stand here as one this morning, um, a, a high and mighty preaching down, amen. I am one that's with us this morning and, I has, and has the responsibility of to, to share the word of God. And as I see these things, it shakes me and challenges and convicts me to the core. So here you have the condition of the children of Israel. Ezekiel sees the inner rooms of the temple and this is exactly a metaphor for the human heart and the inner depths of the heart in our own lives. 
and we referred a moment ago to the church of Laodicea where the doors were shut, uh, to the doors of the heart, where Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking to the church because he's outside. And, what the, and he says, he said, what, does he say, what does Jesus say to the church? He says, open the door. He says, I will come into you and I will fellowship with you. Sweet fellowship, knowing God, having a relationship with God, having our devotions, having a time with the Lord. This is what it's all about, our relationship and our sweet fellowship with the Lord. So Hezekiah, let's go back to Hezekiah because he comes to the throne and look at verse 3 of chapter 29. It says, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. This is the, the, you can just get a sense of Hezekiah's heart. He comes to the throne. He says, you know what? Now I'm in charge. Now I'm, uh, I'm the king. And I tell you, the first thing we're going to do in the first month, and maybe it's, uh, who knows? Well, it might not have been the first day, but I'm sure it was already in his plans. And he says, I'm going to open the doors of the temple. And so symbolic, because he's saying, God, I want you. It's the symbolism of his desire for God, his intent to seek God, to draw near to God. And when the Bible says that he opened the doors and repaired them, the Hebrew word here literally means to fasten upon, to seize, to be strong, courageous, to strengthen, to help and repair. In other words, we don't just, he just didn't repair them. We get a picture of his, the, the intent and desire of Hezekiah's heart. And he is determined to draw near to God. He's determined to repair those doors. I'm going, because he says, I want God. I want Jehovah. I want to be in right relationship. I want him near to me. I want to be near to him. And he opens the doors of the temple on which his father had shut and he goes throughout Jerusalem and the Bible says he destroys the high places and the altars. And this is the picture of revival. You see, look at verse 6. It says, For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. That's what they had done. And Hezekiah has determined that he's going to turn his back on the world and he's going to, he opens the doors and he says, Lord, I'm seeking you. You see, the, what we can see out of this is that Israel was in a state if you want to call it in a spiritual sense, we'll, we, we'll summarize it in this way. They were in a state and they were guilty of the sin of prayerlessness. They were not seeking God. And in the same manner, can we not be guilty of the same sin? Prayerlessness? Can the people of God so turn their faces, as in verse 6, turn their faces away? And turn their backs. It's possible. 
And it happens and it has happened. And so we, if we're not careful, we, that's why the Bible says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Because I tell you, when we look at Israel, what we are seeing as a nation is a microcosm of what happens to us individually and corporately as a church. And none of us are exempt from it. And that's why we're warned of it. These things happened as examples. They're written for our admonition. And so again, I, let us ask ourselves, do we have a personal prayer life? I know we might, some would say, well, look, you know, yes, I do. And, but could we all not be praying more individually? Could we not, in the corp- do we have a corporate prayer life? Because corporate prayer is very important as well to the, ch- to, the, to the body. It's not just a personal relationship with Jesus, me and Jesus. It's also a corporate, we, we are in a body, we are part of a local church. And as part of that local church, we have a corporate connection. And so corporate prayer is also a critical function of the assembly. So corporate prayer is important. Or... Is something else more important? Now I know we sometimes we can't get to meetings. That's fair enough. I don't. I, there might be something on or some commitment. But you know, what about if we're just on the, at the high places rather than at the prayer meeting? That can happen. You see, saying I don't have time is really not good enough. We do have time. We have to make time if we don't have time because we have to put first things first. See, the, as I bring this to a bit of a conclusion, what about the issues of eternity this morning? As I was pondering about all of these things, we, it's so easy to get caught up in the, the things of this world and we lose sight of the, the issues of eternity. We're pilgrims, we're sojourners, we're not of this world. And yet we can get so caught up in this world. And yet the Bible uh, uh, tells us that we must live in light of eternity because I tell you, that's where we will receive our reward. That's where we will receive that which relates to the next life, not this life. And I I was reading about this and various things and one man identified the problem of the modern church and I agree. He says, our lives as Christians and our worship when we come together, impress the world with our love of this life. Now think about that. This is what the church has become. Our lives as Christians and our worship when we come together impresses the world with our love of this life. And really, this is the truth. As I observe, and it's all about as Joel Osteen would put it, your best life now. But you see, that's not the gospel. And I shared with you recently a, a flyer that I received of a church starting up in my area, and it said these words, and I'll say it again in this statement. They said, as, we believe that you are far too valuable to just survive this life. We believe that you were made to thrive in it. Like, where did they get that from? Because that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they want to impress the world of their love of this life. 
But you see, in Hebrews 11, the Bible says, those that were of faith, of whom the world was not worthy. And they had cast everything aside because they were seeking a homeland, the scripture tells us. And you read Hebrews chapter 11. But you see, the gospel and the, and the call of God is not your best life now. It's his life and his will and his purpose. And so the, perp- uh, the whole em- emphasis of Christianity is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. To die to yourself. To present yourself as a living sacrifice. To lay down your life. Not my will, but your will be done. He who loses his life will find it. Gee, you don't hear that in the modern church, do you? It's about your best life now. God's just going to bless you and he's going to give you the desires of your heart. He's going to prosper you in every way. Oh, thank you, Lord. What? There they are worshipping Baal. They are worshipping Ashtoreth and they are worshipping Molech. And I tell you this, uh, uh, this is not in the same way we see it throughout the scriptures. We need a revival in the church. We need a revival in this nation. We need a revival. We need a visitation from heaven. And so revival, as I've trying to illustrate through the scriptures, revival starts in us, in this temple. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Hezekiah said to the Levites, He said, Consecrate yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord your God, your fa- of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. How much rubbish is in the holy place? Carry out the rubbish. We, uh, Seb spoke about uh, Paul and how prior to coming to Christ he counted all things as rubbish but you see in Christ we can have a lot of baggage and the Lord deals with that but we can bring in a lot of rubbish into the temple and now it's time to get rid of the rubbish and seek the Lord and draw near to God and so let me conclude with a few final thoughts in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves. As to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? You see, we need to examine our own hearts. We need to test ourselves in light of the light of God's word, in light of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. How is our prayer life? How is, are we seeking God? Are there high places in our lives that need to be torn down? Is there rubbish that needs to be removed from the holy place? And one last statement. Revivals don't begin happily with everyone having a good time. They start with a broken and a contrite heart. And when we see ourselves as we really are, we come back to the cross. We come back humbly. We come broken. We come with contrition.
And we say, Lord, forgive me. We come with repentance and a heart of repentance and the Lord will have mercy and the Lord will revive. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the word of God this morning. Lord, your word is living and it's powerful. Sharper, Lord, than a two-edged sword. God, it is a divider of the thoughts, of the joints and the marrow and the thoughts and intents of the heart. And God, the light of your word, God, is like a bolt of lightning that goes into the deep recesses of our hearts, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would be open to receive correction, to be convicted, to repent, to remove the rubbish, Lord, whatever it is that's required, oh God, that we would set ourselves to seek you, to draw near, to open the doors of the temple, to clear out the rubbish, Lord, of those inner rooms, and to tear down the high places. Oh God, help us to learn these lessons and follow in the steps of Hezekiah. I ask God in Jesus' name. Amen.